This audio production was made in collaboration with Audible Anarchist. Ecology and Revolutionary Thought by Murray Bookchin, writing as Lewis Herber, originally published in 1964. Part 2. The Reconstructive Nature of Ecology Until recently, attempts to resolve the contradictions created by urbanization, centralization, bureaucratic growth, and statification were viewed as a vain counterdrift to progress, a counterdrift that could be dismissed as chimerical at best and reactionary at worst. The anarchist was regarded as a forlorn visionary, a social outcast, filled with nostalgia for the peasant village or the medieval commune. His yearnings for a decentralized society and for a humanistic community at one with nature and the needs of the individual. The spontaneous individual, unfettered by authority, were viewed as the reactions of a romantic, of a declassed craftsman or an intellectual misfit. His protest against centralization and stratification seemed all the less persuasive because it was supported primarily by ethical considerations, by utopian, ostensibly unrealistic notions of what men could be, not of what he was. To this protest, opponents of anarchist thought, liberals, rightists, and authoritarian leftists, argued that they were the voices of historic reality, that their sadist and centralist notions were rooted in the objective, practical world. Time is not very kind to the conflict of ideas. Whatever may have been the validity of libertarian and non-libertarian views a few years ago, historical development has rendered virtually all objections to anarchist thought meaningless today. The modern city and state, the massive coal-steel technology of the Industrial Revolution, the later, more rationalized systems of mass production, and assembly line systems of labor organization, the centralized nation, the state and its bureaucratic apparatus, all have reached their limits. Whatever progressive or liberatory role they may have possessed has clearly become entirely regressive and oppressive. They are regressive not only because they erode the human spirit and drain the community of all its cohesiveness, solidarity, and ethico-cultural standards, they are regressive from an objective standpoint, from an ecological standpoint. For they undermine not only the human spirit and the human community, but also the viability of the planet and all living things on it. It cannot be emphasized too strongly that the anarchist concepts of a balanced community, a face-to-face -face democracy, a humanistic technology, and a decentralized society, these rich libertarian concepts are not only desirable, but necessary. Not only do they belong to the great visions of man's future, they now constitute the preconditions for human survival. The process of social development has carried them from an ethical, subjective dimension into a practical, objective dimension. What was once regarded as impractical and visionary has become eminently practical, and what was once regarded as practical and objective has become eminently impractical and irrelevant in terms of man's development toward a fuller, unfettered existence. If community, face-to-face -face democracy, a humanistic, liberatory technology, and decentralization are conceived of merely as reactions to the prevailing state of affairs, a vigorous nay to the yea of what exists today, a compelling, objective case can now be made for the practicality of an anarchist society. This rejection of the prevailing state of affairs accounts, I think, for the explosive growth of intuitive anarchism among young people today. Their love of nature is a reaction against the highly synthetic qualities of our urban environment and its shabby products. Their informality of dress and manners is a reaction against the formalized, standardized nature of modern institutionalized living. Their predisposition for direct action is a reaction against the bureaucratization and centralization of society. Their tendency to drop out, to avoid toil and the rat race, reflects a growing anger toward the mindless industrial routine bred by modern mass manufacture in the factory, the office, or the university. 
Their intense individualism is, in its own elemental way, a de facto decentralization of social life, a personal abdication from mass society. What is most significant about ecology is its ability to convert this often nihilistic rejection of the status quo into an emphatic affirmation of life, indeed into a reconstructive credo for a humanistic society. The essence of ecology's reconstructive message can be summed up in the word diversity. From an ecological viewpoint, balance and harmony in nature, in society, and by inference, in behavior, are achieved not by mechanical standardization but by its opposite, organic differentiation. This message can be understood clearly only by examining its practical meaning. Let us consider the ecological principle of diversity, what Charles Elton calls the, quote, conservation of variety, unquote, as it applies to biology, specifically to agriculture. A number of studies, Lotka's and Volterra's mathematical models, Gauss's experiments with protozoa and mites in controlled environments and extensive field research, clearly demonstrate that fluctuations in animal and plant populations ranging from mild to pest-like proportions depend heavily upon the number of species in an ecosystem and the degree of variety in the environment. The greater the variety of prey and predators, the more stable the population. The more diversified the environment in terms of flora and fauna, the less likely there is to be ecological instability. Stability is a function of complexity, variety, and diversity. If the environment is simplified and the variety of animal and plant species is reduced, fluctuations in population become marked and tend to get out of control. They tend to reach pest proportions. In the case of pest control, many ecologists now conclude that we can avoid the repetitive use of toxic chemicals such as insecticides and herbicides by allowing for a greater interplay among living things. We must allow more room for natural spontaneity for the diverse biological forces that make up an ecological situation. Quote, European entomologists now speak of managing the entire plant-insect community, unquote, observes Robert L. Rudd. Quote, it is called manipulation of the biocenos. The biocenetic environment is varied, complex, and dynamic. Although numbers of individuals will constantly change, no one species will normally reach pest proportions. The special conditions which allow high populations of a single species in a complex ecosystem are rare events. Management of the biocenos, or ecosystem, should be our goal, challenging as it is, unquote. The manipulation of the biocenos in a meaningful way, however, presupposes a far-reaching decentralization of agriculture. Wherever feasible, industrial agriculture must give way to soil and agricultural husbandry. The factory floor must yield to gardening and horticulture. I do not wish to imply that we must surrender the gains acquired by large-scale agriculture and mechanization. What I do contend, however is that the land must be cultivated as though it were a garden. Its flora must be diversified and carefully tended, balanced by a fauna and tree shelter appropriate to the region. Decentralization is important, moreover, for the development of the agriculturalist as well as for the development of agriculture. Food cultivation, practiced in a truly ecological sense, presupposes that the agriculturalist is familiar with all the features and subtleties of the terrain on which the crops are grown. He must have a thorough knowledge of the physiography of the land, its variegated soils, cropland, forest land, pasture land, mineral and organic content, and its microclimate, and he must be engaged in a continuing study of the effects produced by new flora and fauna. He must develop his sensitivity to the land's possibilities and needs while becoming an organic part of the agricultural situation. We can hardly hope to achieve this high degree of sensitivity and integration in the food cultivator without reducing agriculture to a human scale, without bringing agriculture within the scope of the individual. 
To meet the demands of an ecological approach to food cultivation, agriculture must be rescaled from huge industrial farms to moderate-sized units. The same reasoning applies to a rational development of energy resources. The Industrial Revolution increased the quantity of energy available to industry, but it diminished the variety of energy resources used by man. Although it is certainly true that pre-industrial societies relied primarily on animal power and human muscles, complex energy patterns developed in many regions of Europe, involving a subtle integration of resources such as wind and water power, and a variety of fuels, wood, peat, coal, vegetable starches, and animal fats. The Industrial Revolution overwhelmed and largely destroyed these regional energy patterns, replacing them first with a single energy system, coal, and later with a dual system, coal and petroleum. Regions disappeared as models of integrated energy patterns. Indeed, the very concept of integration through diversity was obliterated. As I indicated earlier, many regions became predominantly mining areas, often devoted to the production of a few commodities. We need not review the role this breakdown in true regionalism has played in producing air and water pollution, the damage it has inflicted on large areas of the countryside, and the depletion of our precious hydrocarbon fuels. We can, of course, turn to nuclear fuels, but it is chilling to think of the lethal radioactive waste that would require disposal if power reactors were our major energy source. Eventually, an energy system based on radioactive materials would lead to the widespread contamination of the environment, at first in a subtle form, but later on a massive and palpably destructive scale. Or we could apply ecological principles to the solution of our energy problems. We could try to re-establish earlier regional energy patterns using a combined system of energy provided by wind, water, and solar power. We would be aided by more sophisticated devices than any known in the past. We have now designed wind turbines that could supply electricity in a number of mountainous areas to meet the electric power needs of a community of 50,000 people. We have perfected solar energy devices that yield temperatures high enough in warmer latitudes to deal with most metallurgical problems. Used in conjunction with heat pumps, many solar devices could provide as much as three-quarters, if not all, of the heat required to comfortably maintain a small family house. And at this writing, the French are completing a tidal dam at the mouth of the Rance River in Brittany that is expected to produce more than 500 million kilowatt hours of electricity a year. In time, the Rance River project will meet most of the electrical needs of northern France. Solar devices, wind turbines, and hydroelectric resources, taken singly, do not provide a solution for our energy problems and the ecological disruption created by conventional fuels. Pieced together as a mosaic, as an organic energy pattern developed from the potentialities of a region, they could amply meet the needs of a decentralized society. In sunny latitudes, we could rely more heavily on solar energy than on combustible fuels. In areas marked by atmospheric turbulence, we could rely more heavily on wind devices. And in suitable coastal areas or inland regions with a good network of rivers, the greater part of our energy would come from hydroelectric installations. In all cases, we would use a mosaic of non-combustible, combustible, and nuclear fuels. The point I wish to make is that by diversifying our energy resources, by organizing them into an ecologically balanced pattern, we could combine wind, solar, and water power in a given region to meet all the industrial and domestic needs of a community with only a minimal use of hazardous fuels. And eventually we might sophisticate all our non-combustion energy devices to a point where all harmful sources of energy could be eliminated. As in the case of agriculture, however, the application of ecological principles to energy resources presupposes a far-reaching decentralization of society and a truly regional concept of social organization. To maintain a large city requires immense quantities of coal and petroleum. By contrast, solar, wind, and tidal energy can reach us mainly in small packets. 
Except for spectacular tidal dams, the new devices seldom provide more than a few thousand kilowatt hours of electricity. It is difficult to believe that we will ever be able to design solar collectors that can furnish us with immense blocks of electric power produced by a giant steam plant. It is equally difficult to conceive of better wind turbines that will provide us with enough electricity to illuminate Manhattan Island. If homes and factories are heavily concentrated, devices for using clean sources of energy will probably remain mere playthings. But if urban communities are reduced in size and widely dispersed over the land, there is no reason why these devices cannot be combined to provide us with all the amenities of an industrialized civilization. To use solar, wind, and tidal power effectively, the megalopolis must be decentralized. A new type of community, carefully tailored to the characteristics and resources of a region, must replace the sprawling urban belts that are emerging today. An objective case for decentralization, to be sure, does not end with the discussion of agriculture and the problems created by combustible energy resources. The validity of the decentralist case can be demonstrated for nearly all the logistical problems of our time. Let me cite an example from the problematical area of transportation. A great deal has been written about the harmful effects of gasoline-driven motor vehicles, their wastefulness, their role in urban air pollution, the noise they contribute to the city environment, the enormous death toll they claim annually in the large cities of the world and on highways. In a highly urbanized civilization, it would be meaningless to replace these noxious vehicles with clean, efficient, virtually noiseless, and certainly safer battery-powered vehicles. The best electric cars must be recharged about every 100 miles, a feature that limits their usefulness for transportation in large cities. In a small, decentralized community, however, it would be feasible to use these electric cars for urban and regional transportation and establish monorail networks for long-distance transportation. It is fairly well known that gasoline-powered vehicles contribute enormously to urban air pollution, and there is a strong sentiment to engineer the more noxious features of the automobile into oblivion. Our age characteristically tries to solve all its irrationalities with a gimmick. Afterburners for toxic gasoline fumes, antibiotics for ill health, tranquilizers for psychic disturbances. But the problem of air pollution is too intractable for gimmicks, perhaps more intractable than we care to believe. Basically, air pollution is caused by high population densities, by an excessive concentration of people in a small area. Millions of people densely concentrated in a large city necessarily produce serious local air pollution merely by their day-to-day -day activities. They must burn fuels for domestic and industrial reasons. They must construct or tear down buildings. The aerial debris produced by those activities is a major source of urban air pollution. They must dispose of immense quantities of rubbish. They must travel on roads with rubber tires. The particles produced by the erosion of tires and roadway materials add significantly to air pollution. Whatever pollution control devices we add to automobiles and power plants, the improvement these devices will produce in the quality of urban air will be more than cancelled out by future megalopolitan growth. There is more to anarchism than decentralized communities. If I have examined these possibilities in some detail, it has been to demonstrate that an anarchist society, far from being a remote ideal, has become a precondition for the practice of ecological principles. To sum up the critical message of ecology, if we diminish variety in the natural world, we debase its unity and wholeness. We destroy the forces making for natural harmony and stability, for a lasting equilibrium, and what is even more significant, we introduce an absolute retrogression in the development of the natural world that may eventually render the environment unfit for advanced forms of life. To sum up the reconstructive message of ecology, if we wish to advance the unity and stability of the natural world, if we wish to harmonize it on ever higher levels of development, we must conserve and promote variety. To be sure, mere variety for its own sake is a vacuous goal. 
In nature, variety emerges spontaneously. The capacities of a new species are tested by the rigors of climate, by its ability to deal with predators, and by its capacity to establish and enlarge its niche. Yet the species that succeeds in enlarging its niche in the environment also enlarges the ecological situation as a whole. To borrow E.A. Gutkind's phrase, it, quote, expands the environment, unquote, both for itself and for the species with which it enters into a balanced relationship. How do these concepts apply to social theory? To many readers, I suppose, it should suffice to say that inasmuch as man is part of nature, an expanding natural environment enlarges the basis for social development. But the answer to the question, I think, goes much deeper than many ecologists and libertarians suspect. Again, allow me to return to the ecological principle of wholeness and balance as a product of diversity. Keeping this principle in mind, the first step toward an answer is provided by a passage in Herbert Reed's The Philosophy of Anarchism. In presenting his Measure of Progress, Reed observes, quote, Progress is measured by the degree of differentiation within a society. If the individual is a unit in a corporate mass, his life will be limited, dull, and mechanical. If the individual is a unit on his own, with space and potentiality for separate action, then he may be more subject to accident or chance, but at least he can expand and express himself. He can develop, develop in the only real meanings of the world, develop in consciousness of strength, vitality, and joy, unquote. Reed's thought, unfortunately, is not fully developed, but it provides an interesting point of departure. What first strikes us is that both the ecologist and the anarchist place a strong emphasis on spontaneity. The ecologist, insofar as he is more than a technician, tends to reject the notion of power over nature. He speaks instead of steering his way through an ecological situation, of managing rather than recreating an ecosystem. The anarchist, in turn, speaks in terms of social spontaneity, of releasing the potentialities of society and humanity, of giving free and unfettered reign to the creativity of people. Each, in its own way, regards authority as inhibitory, as a weight limiting the creative potential of a natural and social situation. Their object is not to rule a domain, but to release it. They regard insight, reason, and knowledge as means for fulfilling the potentialities of a situation, as facilitating the working out of the logic of a situation, not of replacing its potentialities with preconceived notions or distorting their development into dogmas. Returning now to Reed's words, what strikes us next is that, like the ecologist, the anarchist views differentiation as a measure of progress. The ecologist uses the term biotic pyramid in speaking of biological advances. The anarchist, the word individuation to denote social advances. If we go beyond Reed, we will observe that, to both the ecologist and the anarchist, an ever-enlarging unity is achieved by growing differentiation. An expanding whole is created by the diversification and enrichment of the parts. Just as the ecologist seeks to elaborate the range of an ecosystem and promote a free interplay among species, so the anarchist seeks to elaborate the range of social experience and remove all fetters to its development. Anarchism is not only a stateless society, but also a harmonized society that exposes man to the stimuli provided by both agrarian and urban life, to physical activity and mental activity, to unrepressed sensuality and self-directed spirituality, to communal solidarity and individual development, to regional uniqueness and worldwide brotherhood, to spontaneity and self-discipline, to the elimination of toil and the promotion of craftsmanship. In our schizoid society, these goals are regarded as mutually exclusive dualities, sharply opposed. They appear as dualities because of the very logistics of present-day society. The separation of town and country, the specialization of labor, the atomization of man. 
and it would be preposterous to believe that these dualities could be resolved without a general idea of the physical structure of an anarchist society. We can gain some idea of what such a society would be like by reading William Morris's News from Nowhere and the writings of Peter Kropotkin, but these are mere glimpses. They do not take into account the post-World War II development of technology and the contributions made by the development of ecology. This is not the place to embark on utopian writing, but certain guidelines can be presented even in a general discussion. And in presenting these guidelines, I am eager to emphasize not only the more obvious ecological premises that support them, but also the humanistic ones. An anarchist society should be a decentralized society, not only to establish a lasting basis for the harmonization of man and nature, but also to add new dimensions to the harmonization of man and man. The ancient Greeks, we are often reminded, would have been horrified by a city whose size and population precluded a face-to-face, often familiar relationship between citizens. Today, there is plainly a need to reduce the dimensions of the human community, partly to solve our pollution and transportation problems, partly also to create real communities. In a sense, we must humanize humanity. Electronic devices such as telephones, telegraphs, radios, television receivers, and computers should be used as little as possible to mediate the relations between people. In making collective decisions, and the ancient Athenian ecclesia was, in some ways, a model for making social decisions during the classical period, all members of the community should have an opportunity to acquire in full the measure of anyone who addresses the assembly. They should be in a position to absorb his attitudes, study his expressions, and weigh his motives as well as his ideas in a direct personal encounter and through full debate and face-to-face discussion. Our small communities should be economically balanced and well-rounded, partly so that they can make full use of local raw materials and energy resources, partly also to enlarge the agricultural and industrial stimuli to which individuals are exposed. The member of a community who has a predilection for engineering, for instance, should be encouraged to steep his hands in humus, the man of ideas should be encouraged to employ his musculature, the inborn farmer should gain a familiarity with the workings of a rolling mill. To separate the engineer from the soil, the thinker from the spade, and the farmer from the industrial plant may well promote a degree of vocational over-specialization that leads to a dangerous measure of social control by specialists. What is equally important, professional and vocational specialization would prevent society from achieving a vital goal, the humanization of nature by the technician and the naturalization of society by the biologist. I submit that an anarchist community would approximate a clearly definable ecosystem. It would be diversified, balanced, and harmonious. It is arguable whether such an ecosystem would acquire the configuration of an urban entity with a distinct center, such as we find in the Greek polis or the medieval commune, or whether, as Gutkind proposes, society would consist of widely dispersed communities without a distinct center. In either case, The ecological scale for any of these communities would be the smallest biome capable of supporting a population of moderate size. A relatively self-sufficient community, visibly dependent on its environment for the means of life, would gain a new respect for the organic interrelationships that sustain it. In the long run, the attempt to approximate self-sufficiency would, I think, prove more efficient than the prevailing system of a national division of labor that prevails today. Although there would doubtless be many duplications of small industrial facilities from community to community, the familiarity of each group with its local environment and its ecological roots would make for a more intelligent and more loving use of its environment. I submit that far from producing provincialism, relative self-sufficiency would create a new matrix for individual and communal development. 
a oneness with the surroundings that would vitalize the community. The rotation of civic, vocational, and professional responsibilities would stimulate all the senses in the being of the individual, rounding out new dimensions in self-development. In a complete society, woe could hope, again, to create complete man. In a rounded society, rounded men. In the Western world, the Athenians, for all their shortcomings and limitations, were the first to give us a notion of this completeness. Quote, the polis was made for the amateur, unquote. Kitto tells us, quote, its ideal was that every citizen, more or less, according as the polis was democratic or oligarchic, should play this part in all of its many activities. An ideal that is recognizably descended from the generous Homeric conception of arete as an all-around excellence and an all-around activity. It implies a respect for the wholeness or the oneness of life and a consequent dislike of specialization. It implies a contempt for efficiency, or rather, a much higher ideal of efficiency, an efficiency which exists not in one department of life, but in life itself, unquote. An anarchist society, although it would surely aspire for more, could hardly hope to achieve less than this state of mind. If the meshing of ecological and anarchist principles is ever achieved in practice, social life would yield a sensitive development of human and natural diversity, falling together into a well-balanced, harmonious unity. Ranging from community through region to entire continents, we would see a colorful differentiation of human groups and ecosystems, each developing its unique potentialities and exposing members of the community to a wide spectrum of economic, cultural, and behavioral stimuli. Falling within our purview would be an exciting, often dramatic variety of communal forms, here marked by architectural and industrial adaptations to semi-arid biomes, there to grasslands, elsewhere by adaptation to forested areas. We would witness a dynamic interplay between individual and group, community and environment, humanity and nature. Freed from an oppressive routine, from paralyzing repressions and insecurities, from the burdens of toil and false needs, from the trammels of authority and irrational compulsion, individuals would finally be in a position, for the first time in history, to fully realize their potentialities as members of the human community and the natural world. This has been a production of Audible Anarchist. You can find more Audible Anarchist on YouTube.